I invite you to bow your heads as we pray. Lord, open our hearts. We do believe you're here. We want to humble ourselves before you. We're sinners and you love us. You came because we are sinners. This world offers a certain type of joy. It's short-lived and deceptive. You offer us a different kind of joy which involves the remaking of our hearts, which sometimes is not easy. I'm just praying, Lord, that your spirit would be impressing hearts, especially my own, as we make this journey in the Word now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'm in the third sermon in a series on the Holy Spirit, and it seems to be a subject matter where the devil's trying to agitate and get us to go backwards. Uh, my previous two messages are on our YouTube page. I encourage you to look at them if you've not and you have any interest at all. But I've entitled this morning's message, Game On, Gave Over, Gave Up. I'm not going to be in the last category, and I want to be in the Game On category. And when the game's over, I want to be in the Jesus category. Amen? Now, I always like comeback stories. America is a place of opportunity. And some of you are too young to remember this, and some of you aren't. But back in 1997, after 18 months of consecutive losses, the Apple Corporation was saved from bankruptcy by none other than, anybody know? Bill Gates from Microsoft. Now what you need to know is that Apple had been suing Microsoft because they said Microsoft copied their, uh, their interface, you know, the mouse and the graphical interface. And so when they were there in Las Vegas for one of Steve Jobs' famous uh, engagements, Bill Gates came on the big uh, jumbotron and there was little bitty Steve Jobs and probably Bill Gates wanted it this way. Uh, Microsoft gave, uh, loaned $150 million to Apple. Now, nobody knew back then that Apple was going to harness this thing called the iPhone. iPhones did not exist then. But they tied together the communication and music experience. And they went on in, on August 2 of 2018 to become the first company in the history of the world whose worth would top $1 trillion. Now, right now, they're not worth that much because uh, some lagging iPhone sales. But to think about the fact, I mean, when Bill Gates came on that big screen and Steve Jobs announced it, there were boos and all kinds of things because of the, uh, the heckling and the, the nemesis between these companies. But it was, and it is probably the single most amazing business comeback story in the history of the United States. Now, I'm going to tell you one other. There was a, a gentleman who started a business that most of you interact with today semi-often. And uh, in the course of it all, Fred Smith, as a Yale student, wrote a paper in one of his business classes for which he earned a C. So some of your C papers, not that we want to encourage mediocrity, but some of you who are there in the C category, hang on. I can still remember when Dr. Andres said, uh, my A students come back as professors, my B students come back as members of the board, and my C students come back as millionaires. Fred Smith wrote this article for Yale, for which he got a C. And, uh, you know, if you attend Yale, you might be coming from a little bit better, well-heeled financially situation. And uh, he received an inheritance for $4 million. And with a little bit more that he added to it, he started a company that most of you are benefited by, especially in the holiday seasons. But he got to a place where his company was down to where he only had $5,000 left and he had a $24,000 fuel bill for his fleet of trucks. Now, I'm not here to recommend what he did, 
But I am here to say this. After preaching this sermon today, it may be that it's time for you to do the same thing he did and take a gamble. Now, I'm not talking about running over to Las Vegas like he did with his last $5,000. But Fred Smith, who is the CEO of FedEx, almost was not one of the wealthiest men in the world. But he took his last $5,000 and he thought, I'm going to go to Las Vegas and see if I can't get a little more money out of this, you know? Uh, The odds turned out good for him. He actually won, if you want to say it that way, $27,000. He paid his $24,000 fuel bill for his fleet of FedEx trucks. And I guess you could say the rest is history. God is looking to formulate a comeback for his church. We're in a situation right now where the church is constantly backing up. I don't mean just Adventism, but I include Adventism. Anybody that says it's not true is not paying attention. Now, the difference between me and you and some of the people that say it is some people are negative and I'm positive. I actually believe the best days for this church are in the future, but they won't be the best days if we keep doing things exactly like we're doing today. And I'm not here to suggest for a second that I've got some kind of mechanical fix for this church because I don't. Lots of times we want to say it's our structure. Lots of times we want to say it's how much money we're spending on this or how much money we're spending on that. And we want to tinker with with the mechanics. We want to tinker with the structure. We want to blame the old people. We want to blame the young people. I'm not here today to do anything but blame all the people, all right? Including myself. But I'm also here today to offer a solution. Because when you look at the statistics, they're exceptionally bleak. I mean, it used to be, I listened this morning to a, uh, I, I listened, I won't tell you the website because I'm not really excited about sending people there, but it used to be called uh, Catholic Television TV. The Catholics said, no, that's not us. That doesn't represent us. Don't call yourself that, which was a wise move. But nonetheless, the man on the video was, is a militant Catholic. And he took great delight in explaining in his five minute, and 13 second video that America is now only, at least at the time he was quoting the statistics, only 48% Protestant. So he took great delight in saying America can no longer say it is a Protestant nation. Now I want to tell you what, it's not a good news to find out that people are letting go of their religious affiliation, but there is a reason why. And I'm going to tell you the reason why. The reason why is that if you don't go forward in your journey with Christ, you go backwards. And so what Luther learned was good. He took the church forward. What Wesley and Whitfield did was good. It took the church forward. What many of these great reformers did is they moved the church forward, but then their people said, in effect, we've gone far enough. We don't want to go any farther. Now, if you think Adventism is immune to that, you need to stop and think again. Adventism is is finding itself in the exact same place in the exact same position. It's not that we refuse new truth. It's that We've hung on instead to our cultural experience, our social experience, without hanging primarily on to Jesus and moving forward, whether our friends do or not. So if you happen to be a Catholic, there's a little bit of good news. Nationwide, Catholic membership has increased between between 2000 and 2017, but the number of churches have declined. But let's move over to the Protestants. The Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, that's the ELCA, has lost about 30% of its congregation, its membership, and it's down by 12.5% in its churches. So if that was Michigan, all you'd have to do with our 180 churches is get rid of about 23 of them. Which 23 are we going to get rid of? The little ones? Probably not the big ones. And you know, in our Michigan conference, there might be 23 that are on the bubble. It might be that a generation from now, they don't exist. Is that okay with everybody? Is it all right if we keep backing up? As the devil takes his thugs, the common culture, which by the way, the common culture runs 180 degrees opposite of Christian culture right now. When I was a kid, we were, uh, I should say my parents' generation was incensed by some of the television programs that were coming on, which had two women living with a man and other forays into what we would call social unacceptabilities. But today I want you to know that the immorality of our age actually has turned itself and calls the church the problem. The new bigotry is the old belief system. 
Now, by the way, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, you still fall into a category of people that we call fundamental. I hope you don't have a non-thinking fundamentalist perspective, but if fundamentals means doing the basics well, like in this case, believing the Bible and knowing the scriptures, you can proudly be a Protestant fundamentalist. If it means mindless propagation of thought with heartless actions towards people who are in the wrong, then that's terrible, and I would feel awfully bad to call you a brother or a sister. Had an interesting conversation yesterday. I, I went over to uh, Buller Hall, where I was able to enjoy uh, the research of a number of students. And I walked by, after I was done looking at a few, I walked by one that dealt with the dynamics of social pressure and stress that come to people who practice variant sexual lifestyles. No, I had to stop. Nobody was there. And I thought, I ought to have a conversation with this individual. So, you know, they're all hoping somebody will stop and visit with them. It's a little bit awkward to stand there and watch all these people go by and nobody stops. So there was a guy there and we had a visit. He had a good research project. He was trying to do a good thing. All I wanted to make sure was that his horizons were expanded enough. His horizons. His Verizon is in his pocket. And so I said to him, have you thought about the fact that there's something in your research you can't quantify? And of course, what is that? I said, have you thought about the fact that, first I asked him, are you a Christian? He said, yes. Are you a Seventh-day Adventist? He said, yes. I said, then have you thought about the fact that since God is alive and the Holy Spirit's here and his work is to convict the world of sin and judgment and righteousness, have you thought about the fact that somebody practicing this kind of lifestyle might be under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not just the ostracization of the people he's around? He was willing to accede to that. Of course, I'm very willing to accede to what he wanted to make a point, which was it's important that we treat these people the right way. And to that, I give a hearty amen. And thank you for the research. This morning, I want to go on a journey. Instead of watching the Lutheran church go down by 12%, the Methodist church go down by 16%, the Presbyterian church go down by 40%. Instead of watching these moderate and liberal denominations who have lost their way, they've lost the vision of their founder, which was a commitment to the word, I'm not willing to stand by and watch our schools and our churches wither on the vine and die. And I hope you're not either, because the truth of the matter is, as much as you might not like occasionally how something works in your family, being without a family is worse than having one, even if it's a struggling one. This church is our family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And our job is to pull together, to press together, and to lift up Jesus to a fallen world. The problem is we find ourselves sometimes operating on the wrong mentality. Take your Bibles this morning and open them up, if you would, to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 is the story of a learned man mighty in the Scriptures. Acts chapter 18, Apollos from Alexandria, which happened to be the center of Greek thinking. Apollos from Alexandria, where even the Greek way of looking at the Bible had begun to influence the Hebrews, which might have something to say for why Jesus appeared to his own and his own being destitute as the hills of Gilboa did not receive him. Apollos, 20 years this narrative is written by Luke after Pentecost. Apollos is a man who receives a thumbs up review by the writer. It says in verse 24 of Acts 18, now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man came to Ephesus. He was mighty in the scriptures. He was what, friends? He was mighty in the scriptures. He was focusing on the right thing. Are we focusing on the right thing? Do, do we have time to be in the scriptures, let alone become mighty in the scriptures? I want to tell you something. We are living in an age where we are scrimmaging for the postseason game. America is a prophetic movement. It has been placed here to enlighten the world with the gospel truth. But where it was once distinctly a religious country without legalizing religion, its culture was 
religious primarily. Now the culture, instead of just veering off a little ways from Christianity, the culture is running 100% opposite of what the country once stood for. What I want you to understand is that this all by itself is a sign that Jesus is coming soon. The polarization in politics, the anger in society, the hatred between the rich and the poor, these are all signs that the Holy Spirit is being withdrawn from the earth and Jesus will come soon. They weren't signs that existed 20 years ago. I can remember as a boy, or a young man I should say, in Washington DC and then later on the road trip up to Boston, I went to a Red Sox game, and as I was walking into the ballpark, Tip O'Neill walked by me, out of the ballpark, Tip O'Neill walked by me going into the ballpark. He was uh, the leader of the Democrats in that day. You know, back then, people could talk to each other. But as the Holy Spirit is withdrawn, and we agree in common on less and less, it's more about fighting and angling than anything else to get what you want. This is a sign of the times. The Holy Spirit is being withdrawn from our earth. And what we're seeing is that even free speech is now propaganda more often than it is truth. You can get your flavor of this or your flavor of that news by going to a certain station. I want you to know this is a preparation to make every credible source of information questionable. We are coming near to the final postseason game. Now listen, if I said to you, and I, I, I don't want to veer off too far on the sports arena. But if I said to you, if I took a team that wasn't even in the, that was in the bottom of the bottom, and they played terrible all season long, and I said, that's a team that I think should go to the Super Bowl, and I'm willing to bet my life savings that they'll win. Or let's do it worse than that. Let's say you're in some kind of league, and your team never comes together to play a single game all summer long. You're in a softball team. Your team never comes together all summer long to even play a game. But then you find out that there is going to be one final game at the end. And the winners live and the losers die. How do you feel about how you approach the season? What I'm trying to say to you is that In a very secular culture, religion looks irrelevant. More than that, it looks like the problem. But all of a sudden, we're going to go from game off or over. We're going to go to game on. And when game is on, there's only a few chapters and then game is over. And what's at stake is your eternal destiny. It's whether or not you want to experience a life of love, liberty, freedom, and joy in Christ for all eternity with the ones you love. This is what's at stake. And so when we approach this component of the scriptures casually, we haven't even met the mark that Apollos met. He was not filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to find out he wasn't teaching his disciples about the Holy Spirit, but he is still getting a favorable reference from Luke, the doctor. He was mighty in the scriptures. We might need to let go of some of our extracurriculars. We might not be able to be as good at this or good at that. We can't do everything. But the one thing we can't let go of is our time with God in His Word. This is where we have to be. Turn off the television. Give up the Netflix. Spend less time on Facebook. Let yourself have some time to be quiet and to think and to hunger for truth. Because there's going to come a day... When if your gospel armor has never been put on, you are not going to feel like going out against a troop like David said he could do in the name of God. It'll be game over before the game even begun. We all love a great comeback story. Go Frederick Smith, write your C paper for Yale and come out as one of the wealthiest men in the world. But it takes a lot of grit to succeed. And let's not be confused. For as much as Jesus does for us, he does not hold the spoon up to our mouth and say, please eat this, you'll like it. But he does say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If there's a reason you're not hungry and thirsting for righteousness, talk to him about it. So what happens? Apollos has 12 apostles. He has 12 disciples. This man, verse 25, had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. So he gets another thumb up. He's accurate on the life of Jesus. 
But there is a little almost parenthetical phrase here, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. He began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but there were two listeners who recognized something was not there. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And you know, Paul has so much confidence in him that he will write to Apollos and say, please come back to Corinth. And and Apollos will say, not right now. And Paul will have to tell him that he doesn't really sense he should go. Now let's go up to chapter 19. Remember, we're two decades after Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, which he eventually must have gone, Paul passed through the upper country and he came to Ephesus and some and found some disciples. Now it's going to tell us that he found 12, about 12 disciples. Verse 2, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. Now I want to hit the pause button. Apollos was mighty in the scriptures. He defended against the Jews. He was accurate in the description of Jesus, but he was preaching without the powerful infilling of the Holy Spirit. His disciples didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Did they? Was it, would it have been proper then for everybody who had been taught by Apollos to say, well, Apollos didn't teach us anything about the Holy Spirit, so there must not be a Holy Spirit. Is your loyalty to the teacher, is your loyalty to Jesus, the teacher of teachers? Are you learning to hear his voice so you can follow truth? Are you in the word so you can be in Christ? This is an important thing. Some who are naysaying the doctrine of the Godhead and would have us go backwards say that, you know, people like Uriah Smith, they, weren't, they didn't believe in this doctrine of the Trinity. Well, you know what? Maybe Uriah didn't live long enough to understand it, but our other founders who went forward embraced it in the same way that Apollos' disciples are going to embrace it. The question for us today is, are we personally embracing it? Pentecost is 2,000 years ago, but there is a personal Pentecost for all of us. I'm to be filled with the Spirit day by day. I'm to hunger and long for it so that my life can be fruitful and victorious. There are lots of Seventh-day Adventists going through life who are not being filled with the Spirit. Thus, their lives are about the perpetual bondage of an accusing conscience. There's no freedom and no power. Listen, the baptism of John was a call to repentance. When John got put in jail, Jesus called people to repentance. But praise God, it didn't stop there. Jesus told the disciples, don't leave town until you've got the promise of what I said I'd give you. And during those 10 days of praying, they readied their heart in humility before the Lord. And on the last of those 10 days, the sound of a mighty rushing wind came through that room and there were tongues of fire above them and everything changed. Peter, who ran away from three, from a couple maids and a servant of the high priest is now bold to preach a gospel message in which there is a call to repentance, but there is also an invitation to receive a refreshing from above. Listen, A message of repentance is primarily about morality and conduct. Now, there is nothing wrong with morality and there is nothing wrong with moral conduct. But that is is as far as your religion goes. You're living like Paul in Romans chapter 7 when he says, who's going to deliver me from this bondage and this death? A call to repentance matters, but being filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized by the Holy Spirit liberates, frees, ennobles and empowers for a different kind of life. And if you don't receive that power, eventually you will abandon that nagging voice that always tells you you're just doing wrong. Worse than that, you are wrong. You're bad. Now, I'm not saying one negative thing about living a moral life. What I'm saying is, is that living a moral life is only really possible through transformation, which is what the indwelling of the Holy Spirit gives you. If you're not transformed, 
You can go your whole life with a nagging conscience and, and wonder about whether or not you have assurance in Christ. But when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, God gives you victory in places where you've only known bondage before. It's so absolutely imperative that we are baptized not only with the water, but with the fire. Because if you're not baptized with the Holy Spirit, you just need to go back into the watery grave over and over and over and over and over and over again. And we all need forgiveness throughout our life. Sanctification is a work of a lifetime. But the power of the Holy Spirit actually allows you to get out of the swamp and fly high. I'll tell you too. I uh, got criticized the other day. One of my friends told me about it. Now my friends probably don't tell me about all the criticism they hear about me, which is nice. The Bible says, be careful not to listen too carefully lest you hear your servant cursing you, for you know you yourself have cursed as well. But I had one of my friends tell me about one of my criticisms. At least he followed it up that he didn't believe it. But they said, yeah. Ran into a person the other day, says you only preach on two things. Go ahead, get your two things. Let's see if you agree with my critic. You got your two things? They said, yeah. They said, uh, you only preach on two things. El Salvador and iPhones. Well, let's spin the wheel one more time, all right? I already did El Salvador here. By the way, I want to preach about Montana and Amazon and Puerto Rico too, by the way. And by the way, folks, I hope when these young people collect the offering at the end, I hope you show them what a generous church you are because the reflex influence is already at work here. So help them go to Puerto Rico with as many things to give away to the students as possible. Amen? All right, so have your wallets ready when you go out the door today and show Great Lakes Adventist Academy that your hearts are enlarging for the gospel work. So anyway, uh, let's get on to the other thing I preach about right here. I do happen to have an iPhone. And um, I'm going to spin the wheel one more time. You know, I only wish that I could tell you everything that I learn about little kids who get their purity and their innocence destroyed by this. I heard another story this week, but I'm not going to tell it to you because it wouldn't do any good for you to know it. In my line of work, I've got a lot of things that if they weren't purified by the love of Jesus that come in this brain, I'd be living in the muck. But I'm going to tell you, just two days ago, I had somebody tell me about a fifth grader who was commenting with his other fifth graders on things that no adult man should have been commenting on to another adult man. You think I'm against these things? I'm against them when they're put in hands that aren't ready to receive them. Just make sure I'm clear. You don't get purity back easily. You don't get innocence back easily. And there are people listening to me right now who are chained to this thing and the wrong spots it can take you with the touch of a finger. You betcha I'm against it because eternal souls that weren't ready for this were ruined by what would appear to be progressive parents who wouldn't want their kids to be denied when everybody else has one. Well, when everybody else goes to hell, will you be okay with your kids being in that lineup? Think about it. It's time to rise up and be leaders if you're a parent. It's time for you to be leaders if you're a teacher. It's time for you to be leaders if you're administrators. It's time for you to be leaders if you're pastors. It's not okay. We are locked in a battle for the soul. And when you open things up in little kids' hearts and minds that they don't know how to control and they don't even understand, maybe the millstone ought to be gotten out and we ought to tie the rope to one end of it to us and think about walking down to the bridge. That's exactly what Jesus said. Dereliction of duty Apathy and indifference in an age where the preseason battles are being fought. The game is almost over, but it's about to begin in the final season. And when it begins, we're going to find out there are some people that have been so progressive 
that they've progressed their way all the way over to the world's way of thinking. And coming back to seeing it like Jesus sees will look so unpalatable that they won't even desire to go. I don't want a church, whether it's this church or Cedar Lake or wherever you might go, I don't want a church that's focused only on the baptism of repentance. But I'll tell you what, if you as parents won't talk about repentance to your kids and you don't know what right and wrong is, you can be sure being filled with the Holy Spirit will never be a reality. The baptism in the water precedes the baptism by the fire. Usually. (laughs) It's the Holy Spirit Himself that brings us to life and gives us a sense that there needs to be repentance. Here are these 12 men in Ephesus. It appears that after Apollos has sent them there, nothing's happened. But Paul is there. And after a little while, the sale of idols to Diana, great is the God of, of Ephesus, the sales to idols fall out. There's an uproar in the city. They want to kill the leaders of this Christian sect. And the commentary by the secularists is, you've filled the whole world with your teaching. Paul was not that powerful of a person to do it, but God is big enough to get it done. Amen? And you know what? The game almost looks like it's over. It almost looks like it doesn't matter. Christianity is backing up, backing up, backing up, apologizing for its value system. In a world where the microphone is held by everybody who has a humanist, liberal agenda where you should indulge yourself any way you want. It doesn't matter if it ruins your wife's life or ruins your kid's life or ruins the society or ruins the church. That's where we're headed. And finally, when it all falls to pieces, we're going to be back over at the starting place, which is we got to get back to God and then the game will be on. The only thing is, the question will then be, is the game over Because I wasn't preparing in the preseason for what I knew was coming. We're people of the book. We're people of prophecy. Of all things, we should be wise enough to know and sense enough to the Holy Spirit to say, I'm backing up. I'm I'm backing away from this. Without the Holy Spirit, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is becoming painfully clear, cannot go forward. We need our hearts revived with the love of Jesus. We need our hearts assured that we're forgiven. We need the confidence to stand up for what we know is right. And we need to be unembarrassed when we do it. Nothing can compensate for the lack of the Holy Spirit. What gas is to the engine and electricity to the motor, the Holy Spirit is to the soul's battle with sin. You stuck? Listen, yeah, we get stuck. The idols in your life, you built them. You sure did. What's the likelihood of you wanting to tear down something you build? It's a masterpiece. I love this. I mean, when I can get my tunes on, who says this isn't Christian music? When I can tantalize my eyes, when I can feed on that violence, when I can spend my money on whatever I want to spend it on, who are you to rain on my parade? The truth of the matter is we have idols in our lives. The Holy Spirit keeps coming to us in times like this church service or a Vespers or a family worship. And and he's saying to you, would you give it up? Could you give it to me? We don't want to tear down what we built up. Let's go find a teacher who agrees with us. Let's get an Apollos in our corner so we can do what we want. The Holy Spirit, you don't have to listen to Paul. You're my followers. Listen, friends. At the end of the day, nobody's going to have an excuse because like Hebrews states in the beginning, God in who divers in divers places and manifest times spoke. God speaks. He is speaking loud enough for every human being to hear. Some are gradually or rapidly turning off or turning down the volume. At the end, it won't be that provision wasn't made and the shepherd didn't come looking. It'll be that we said, go away. Now, if you have that, which most of us do or have, the only way you're going to get rid of that idol is to say, Lord, I like my idol. You won't even want to call it an idol. Man, I have an interesting job. If there's anybody listening to me here today who's called to be a preacher, you better be ready for game on. I have the most interesting, challenging job in the world. I'm a physician to the soul. I'm a lawyer for the cause of Christ. And I'm a shepherd for the saints. I wear all those hats almost all the time. But I'm going to tell you something. When the Holy Spirit speaks, 
He speaks loud enough to be heard. That's why we still come to church. That's why we still have family worship. When the Holy Spirit speaks, you don't have to say, I don't have the power. He says, I know. (laughs) But would you give me permission? Most people won't even call their idols an idol. It's like everybody whose marriage, the lines are blurring. When that person at work starts paying too much attention to you, you will never admit until it goes farther than you thought it could go that there was something going on there that shouldn't have been going on. It doesn't have to end up as an affair. But those lines of propriety end up blurring in a marriage at some point in time. It's the same way. Yeah, no, there's no problem. In the same way with an idol. My love affair was something Satan has put in my life. I don't want to call it a problem because as soon as I call it a problem, I just turned up the sense of guilt and I've got to do something. Either turn God off or turn it over. This is where we're at. You don't hear much preaching about repentance. As a matter of fact, when I listened to that website this morning, the Catholic commentator on there, he wasn't a priest, by the way, just a Catholic news commentator, he went so far as to say that Protestantism is partially responsible for the paganization of our society. Now, I want you to think about that. What he's saying is, is that Protestantism abandoned the call to moral living and just fused all of that into church and you could have whatever you want at church. Your music, your drama, your cappuccino, your convenience, everything but conviction. When the Protestant church moved away from the call to repentance to right and wrong, when there was no clarion call to move in the narrow way, in effect, the Protestant church was paving the way for a conscious, consciousless progression to paganism. You think it doesn't happen in Seventh-day Adventism? I'll guarantee you, absolutely it does. Flatter the sinner and he'll flatter you back. Some of you raise horses. Some of those horses that you love have kicked you. They've bit you. Some of you have raised kids. They kick and bite too. <laughs> if you think they quit kicking and biting when they become adolescents, you're wrong. They just kick and bite different. You're the worst person in the world. I hate you. Nobody else does this. My 29-year-old turned 29 in April. I finally made it. He told me the other day on the phone, now listen, I was born in 1964, so let's put all this in perspective. But he told me the other day on the phone that we raised him like we were growing up in the 60s. I'm not sure what, the 60s predates the 70s, you know. Some of you grew up in the 70s with me. This kid gave me more grief than all the three others combined. I think he was a walking me, which probably explains it. He called me up the other day. It's amazing what life does. Life is the ultimate educator. This is why you're to honor the people with gray hair. Everybody's in school, just some, some aren't learning. But he called me up the other day and he said, Dad, now he's my only married child. I have three boys and a girl. He's my oldest. He said, Dad, I got my payback. He said, Dad, when I have kids, I'm going to raise them just like you. Yeah, I'm telling you, if you're a parent, If you have to wait 29 years to hear it, it's okay. But you know what? I wasn't changing for his favor. I was not his friend. I was his dad. And even as a 28-year-old about to turn 29, 
I haven't quit being his dad. Now, I don't dad him. I don't father him like I did when he was six or 16 or 26. But you know, the good news is now he calls me up for advice. You know, you need to remember something, parents. You don't have to be liked by your kids to influence them. You just need to be respected. People get over. Like comes and goes. <laughs> you don't even like your spouse sometimes. It's true. Listen, I have a wonderful spouse. She's way better for me than I am for her. But I'm going to tell you after being married for 33 years, you don't always like your spouse. And you definitely don't always like your kids, all right? <laughs> but you love them. Can I get an amen? amen? Which means your parents, teachers, parents, pastors, leaders, we cannot abandon our call to unique living. It is our lifestyle that's the walking billboard that gets the attention. It's our love lived out in our lifestyle, a holy, pure lifestyle. But you know what? We must have freedom. We must have fragrance. We must have fruitfulness. And that you can't create. Morality and a focus on conduct can't create that. But the infilling of the Holy Spirit lifts you up above all of that accusation of conscience and motivates you with love to win a lost world, which may mean somebody living in your house and it may mean somebody you're working with and it may mean somebody you're going to school with. But I'm going to tell you what, you can't drown out the voice of the Holy Spirit. And if you do, I shouldn't say easily, but if you do, you've traded in this world as the one that you've, as the only one you've had an interest in. Listen, we will always be the minority. We will never be in the ascendancy with numbers. All I want you to know is that the whole Old Testament is full of stories just like that. And when Jonathan said to his armor bearer, I'm thinking maybe we ought to go do something about those guys. I love these people. They prayed about it and they had a sign. And they basically said, if they tell us to come on up, it's game on. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. And they climbed up that craggy cliff and two men took on a whole troop and they won. I'm on the winning side today. Do you want to be on the winning side? I'm asking you, are you seeking the Holy Spirit to fill your life? Or are you progressing in a fairly orthodox Adventist cultural journey. Are you making time? Are you seeking Jesus? Can he tell you, include this, exclude that? Are you willing to let Jesus live in your heart? Just like we sang there. 547. Must be one of my favorite songs. Be thou my vision. Those Irish people, they write the best songs. Thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. That's how you win. Now listen, there is a beauty in holiness. I'm married to the most fantastic woman for me. I trust every word she says. I don't doubt her love and fidelity to me. She is not a violent person. She's not greedy and covetous. She's respectful of her parents and older people. She loves and honors God. She's kind to her students. She's a faithful worker. She wouldn't think of taking God's name in vain. And she's a whole lot more than I could tell you just doing a quick synopsis of the Ten Commandments. And I'm going to tell you something. Living with her is beauty. There's beauty in holiness. The devil's trying to tell you is bad news. I know a person right now who's living with someone they shouldn't be living with. Everything seems all right right now. But let me ask you this. If they were to get married five years into the marriage, do you think they might have a doubt that the absence of morality that preceded the marriage might still be a problem in that person's heart? 
There's no beauty in it in the long term. Some people don't want the Holy Spirit to come because if he comes, he's going to rain on their parade. If that's what's going to happen, you're in the wrong parade. And it doesn't matter who else is there with you. I'm asking you today, would you be willing? I didn't ask if you wanted to. Would you be willing to let the Holy Spirit lead you to the next step in your life? And if it means tearing down an idol or if it means changing your habits, that you'd let Him give you the power and eventually the desire to do it. Are you willing? If I asked you all to stand, you all would. Because nobody doesn't want to stand when everybody else is standing. And I do think I should give people an invitation to say yes to the call that comes from the divine worship hour. But I'm going to do it a little bit differently. How about if we just pray? Could you bow your heads? I'm going to do it while we're praying. And you with God do what you need to do while we're talking to Him. Lord, it's not a game. We've been taught that everything's going to be okay. Science will solve everything. The government will step in and make things right. We're not prepared for the time, Lord, when this country's resources and organizational ability is overrun. When it appears that we've ruined the planet, whether you think man did it or it just wore out. We're not prepared, Lord. And when we think about it, we're naturally afraid. We don't want to live fearful. The problem is, Lord, we're stuck between what we really love and you. And nobody here wants to say, Lord, they really love that more than they love you. And nobody even wants to get close to being really admitting that something's an idol, especially if they like it so much. So Lord, I'm not asking for uniformity and conformity and an appeal for everybody to stand. I've asked them to bow their heads. I'm pausing so you could speak. Our sacred institutions are not perpetual and they're under attack. And I don't believe you ever intended for us to keep backing up and downsizing. So I'm asking, Lord, that you'd move on the hearts of my brothers and sisters that are gathered here from the youngest one that's self-aware and intelligent enough to understand my words to the oldest person who barely made it here today but loves this cause. And I'm praying, Lord, that we could be brutally honest with ourselves through your power, knowing how loved we are. And that we would make a decision to seek the infilling of your Spirit for every day so that no contact would be missing out on the fragrance of Christ enshrined within Lots of people will be going lots of places this week, Lord. I pray, bless them. But in the next seven days, we're going to go to home and we're going to go to work and we're going to go maybe back to church or to school. May we go nowhere at the beginning of our day without going filled with you. So forgive our sins, Lord. We've neglected and we've fallen in love with things we shouldn't have. And some things aren't even bad, Lord. They're just in the wrong place. So I'm praying, set us free. And if someone were to talk to us about the Holy Spirit, may we be able to quickly engage in a very free dialogue. Cleanse us, make us humble, and use us now, I pray. And hear us, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Please take your hymn books and turn to number 260. It is a prayer. Or the screen will have the song. Number 260. Let's stand together. May this song be the prayer of our hearts. Please be seated.
we leave here today, I want to say something both to the students and to the body. Uh, students, you're looking at a very generous group of people here. And brothers and sisters, let's send them out with a generous offering. But you're not but four or five years away from being out with degrees of your own. And I'm asking you, as you receive from the Michigan Conference constituents, to make a covenant in your heart that when you get out and you're making the big bucks that you can make in some of the careers that you go into today, that you fund and finance God's cause. Amen? All right. The deacons will wait upon us to dismiss us now. May God bless you with a wonderful Sabbath.